Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and we are beginning a new teaching series this morning in the book of Jonah. Now, the story of Jonah is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Nearly everyone, if you've been in church just for a little while, has heard of it, and that's true regardless of whether you're an adult or a child. In fact, when people put together storybook Bibles or Bible book series for children, invariably they select Jonah as one of the stories to include among the selections. They include it. I've done some studies on this. They do include it, but they typically do so in a way that alters the story. They mostly focus on the big fish that swallows Jonah, even though the fish only appears in three verses out of the entire book. They focus on the fish and they tend to recast the story as a morality tale. A tale that preaches, do what you know is right to do. If you've seen Disney's Pinocchio, you get the same kind of sense there. Also, someone gets swallowed by a whale because he's gone against his conscience. Do what you know is right to do. Always let your conscience be your guide. Or if you don't, something really bad's going to happen to you. Do what's right or you'll get hurt. Now that retelling, that recasting, has nothing to do with the biblical account of Jonah. Instead, the book is primarily about God. It's about his passion for a world that is blinded by sin and evil. It shows you the lengths that he'll go to in order to bring people back to himself. And in showing you that, it's interweaving justice and mercy. It's asking questions of who deserves justice, who deserves mercy, as well as who is authorized to dispense justice and mercy. And far from promoting a moralistic worldview, that those who are good deserve to get mercy, the book argues that a moralistic outlook on life will keep you from seeing your own need of mercy. And that kind of a worldview will set you up to make you just as wicked and evil as people who think, who you think should be punished. It's not an easy book to read. It's not a nice book. It's not gonna leave you feeling warm inside. It's gonna make you uncomfortable. But it's a book that helps you understand how to think about yourself, how to think about the larger world, how to think about what God's doing in this larger world. It's a book that will be very helpful to us, especially in this tumultuous time that we find ourselves. For instance, today's passage is all about justice, which, as you know, is one of the things that our country is aching for. But as this passage talks about justice, it's going to do so in a way that will challenge many of us probably challenge all of us. I know it challenges me. It's challenging because the way that God does justice is different from the ways that human beings do justice. We're not always doing them in the same kind of way. And so we're going to look at this passage today. We're going to notice three things about justice, and we're going to see how we as human beings are not always on the same page that God is. What are those three things? First, we're going to see that justice is more complex than people think it is. As I listen to this country call for justice, not only this past summer and spring, but as I've been listening over the years and as I've been listening as we call for justice over many different issues, 
I get the sense that we as Americans believe that justice is relatively simple, that it's a matter of seeing something wrong and then bringing some kind of coercive power to that wrong. Either you, you protest or you riot or you bring an economic boycott or you legislate or you publicly shame. You exert some kind of external coercive power to target that wrong that you see in this belief that if you just bring enough power, eventually you can keep that thing from ever happening again. When you study the scriptures, you realize that God's take on justice is not simple. God cares deeply about justice and he cares deeply that we exert justice in this world, but he doesn't simply use power to right wrongs. Rather, his approach to injustice involves a lot more things and it's multidimensional. The scriptures teach you that justice is more complex than you think it is. Secondly, today we're going to see that God's complex justice is more unified than most people want. We're going to see that human beings don't want to apply God's kind of complex justice in all of its dimensions to all people. Instead, we would rather take certain aspects out of there and apply that, those aspects to some people, and we'll take different aspects and apply those to other people. You read the scriptures and realize God does not do that. He doesn't play favorites when he dispenses his justice. He's not a justice relativist. His justice comes to each person as a package deal. It's more unified than most people want it to be. And then third, we're going to see that justice is more applicable than people know. That simply because you can spot injustice in someone else does not mean that you yourself are free from being unjust. Instead, there's a blindness to us that is unaware often of how unjust we can be. Justice is not something that we call to be applied to others. It's something that also has to be applied to us. It's more applicable to each one of us than most of us realize. So if you're going to live in an unjust world, a world that was unjust before you got here, a world that's going to continue to wrestle with injustice long after you're gone, if you're going to live in this unjust world and if you are going to work to see justice done, which is what God calls you to do, you need to understand these three things. You need to see that justice is more complex than you think it is, that it's more unified than you may want it to be, and that it's more applicable to you than you know. First, justice is more complex than you think. God calls Jonah, verse 2, to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now that's a command that's completely unpalatable to Jonah, and it's unpalatable because of the backstory here. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was a city that was about 500 miles from Israel's northern border. It was about a month's journey away. And God calls what the Assyrians have done evil without explaining what evil means. Jonah would not have needed an explanation because at that time the Assyrians had already established a hundred year reputation of being cruel. It was a reputation that was both well-known and well-deserved. They boasted in their brutality. They wrote in great detail about the carnage that they left on battlefields. They carved incredibly graphic pictures of their atrocities in stone panels to memorialize the kinds of things that they did. I'm going to quote here briefly from a commentary, just cut out a small part of one of them, and I need to warn you that it's pretty graphic, it's disturbing, but you need to have some sense here of what God means when he says they're evil. Quote, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs in one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. 
They force friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive, unquote. That's a small taste of the sickening, monstrous things they did. Not once, not twice, over and over and over until they had established for themselves at Jonah's day a hundred-year history. Assyria was cruel. They were violently cruel. That wasn't the extent of their evil. That, however, was just a part of it. Another prophet, Nahum, lived about a hundred years after Jonah. He unpacked the larger problem uh, with Assyria. God had told him to preach against Assyria, and he indicted them for two main things. One, for destroying people physically, for attacking and ruining nations. He indicted them for destroying people physically and for destroying people spiritually by luring them into immorality. And because Assyria had destroyed people both physically and spiritually, Nahum prophesied that God would judge them. And his book ends with this sentence. All who hear the news about you, the news of your destruction, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nahum says to Assyria, you have destroyed people physically, you've destroyed them spiritually, and everyone in the ancient world has had a taste of that, and God has decided no more. God has decided to judge you. In other words, you realize this is God's world. You can't live in it without him assessing what you've done. You're made in his image. You're created by him to represent him, to treat other people like he would treat them. He made you for that, and he assesses how you're doing at that. He judges. That is part of his justice. You can't escape his judgment. He is committed to assessing how you've done, committed to affirming and blessing what you've done well, and equally committed to punishing every trace of anything that does not line up perfectly with how he would have done it. There's an absolute standard against which our beliefs and actions are weighed, an absolute standard of goodness against which everything else is judged. You cannot live unjustly in God's world and escape judgment. That's part of God's justice. I'm going to say it this way. It's part of God's justice package because it's only a part. There are other parts to this package, parts that affect how he carries out that judgment. For instance, as I've already noted, the Assyrians have been working at their reputation for a hundred years, building a legacy of evil and cruelty, and it was only after it was well established, hundred years, well, well established, that God comes to Jonah and says, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. In other words, God does judge, but he's patient before he judges. He waits, and he thinks that by waiting, He's executing justice. Not only does he wait, but he also warns. He has a plan to bring judgment down on Nineveh, but he decides to interrupt the life of one of his servants, Jonah, and send him on a journey that's going to take him about a month for the sole purpose of warning this cruel, predatory nation that he's had enough, that he's now ready to judge them. He waits, then he warns. And he thinks that waiting and warning are part of executing justice. Start to get a sense here of how complex God's justice is, how multidimensional it is. We've only looked at three verses. We've hardly scratched the surface. 
If you start going through scripture, there's an awful lot more that it has to say about justice. But frankly, I'm not sure that I like what we've already found. I'm not sure that I like the idea of a complex justice. I'm not as comfortable with God's patience as apparently God is. I prefer passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Passage that says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. See, that makes sense to me. If you make justice wait, you'll encourage people to be more unjust. I like that. I don't like 100 years of patience. But what am I saying there? I'm saying deep inside, I want to choose and I want to pick the aspects of justice that fit into my worldview. And here's where I need to be very careful. Because in this moment, in our larger society, there are a lot of voices out there that are urging me to take some aspects of justice and to prioritize those over other aspects of justice. And I find some of those voices out there compelling. And I find some of those other voices not as compelling. I lean towards some, I lean away from others, and that's dangerous. Because it means that I'm right on the edge of framing my understanding of the world through the lens of what I like and what I don't like. And it means that I'm tempted to adopt certain beliefs of justice on the basis of how compelling or how not compelling I find them. Not on the basis of how compelling or not compelling God finds them. But that means if I'm going to line up with God, I'm going to have to do a lot of work. I'm going to have to study. I can't simply scroll through my newsfeed. I can't simply react to what I'm reading or hearing. I have to do the hard work of actually thinking about what I'm taking in. And I have to do the hard work of thinking about it through the light of Scripture, which means I have to do the hard work of studying Scripture. And so I have to ask God, how do you think about matters of justice when either individuals or whole societies do great evil in your eyes? What factors do you weigh into the mix? How do you respond to evil in your world? I have to ask that question. And I have to have the humility to adopt God's view and to act accordingly. And that's hard. It's a lot easier to ask the question, does God agree with me? And if God agrees with me, I will be happy to act in line with his beliefs. And if he doesn't, I have no problem doing what I think is best. That's an awful lot easier than studying and wrestling with my heart to actually get me to where God himself is. It's much easier to take the road of Jonah, to decide in advance what is just or unjust and then act in line with what you already believe. But that's not obedience. That's not obeying the Lord. You don't obey the Lord because the word of the Lord lines up with what you already think you obey because it is the word of the Lord. And here's the sad reality. When you evaluate God's beliefs by your own, when you sit in judgment on how he thinks based on how you think, then you're not ever going to obey him. Because even if you end up doing what he would want you to do, it's not his beliefs that you're obeying. It's your own. His beliefs especially about justice, are far more complex than you have yet understood. They take far longer to understand than most people want to take the time to understand and grow. That's point one. Justice is more complex than you think. Point two. 
God's justice is more unified than you want it to be. This point's tied to the earlier one. God has decided now that it's time for Nineveh to experience his justice in all of its rich complexity. And so he sends Jonah to warn them, and Jonah refuses. Jonah recognizes, verse 1, that the word of the Lord has come to him. He understands what the word of the Lord sounds like. He knows that this is what the Lord wants. But Jonah doesn't want the same thing. He doesn't want the Assyrians to get the warning. And you have to wait until chapter 4 of the book to understand why. In chapter 4, that's the time where Jonah has actually gone to Assyria. He's delivered the message that God gave to them. They actually respond by repenting, turning from their evil, and so God doesn't destroy them. And Jonah is absolutely furious. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says to God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It makes it sound like that's a horrible thing for God. Why is it that Jonah didn't want to go? He knew that there was a chance that Nineveh would take the warning seriously. He knew there was a chance they would repent, and he knew that if they repented, then God would relent. God would not judge them. He knew that there was a chance that God would not descend disaster. And Jonah didn't want that. He wanted Nineveh destroyed. He didn't want God to be gracious and merciful. He didn't want him to relent. He wanted God to stay angry. And so he tried to make sure that the Assyrians could not repent. He left the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa. He found a ship headed in the opposite direction. Now why doesn't God, uh, I'm sorry, why doesn't Jonah want God to be merciful. It's not because he's opposed to the concept of mercy. Jonah is drowning in chapter 2. God saves his life. Jonah knows that it's God's mercy to him. He knows that it's undeserved. He's deeply grateful to receive it. He does not hate the idea of God being merciful. He hates the idea of God being merciful to the Assyrians. What's going on here? Now again, there's a bigger backstory that's helpful for you to have. Jonah was a prophet during the time when the Jewish nation was divided into the northern kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. Jonah lived in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been dealing with Assyria for decades. They were paying tribute to Assyria as their overlord. But Jonah was more than just sort of a bystander to what was going on in ancient Near Eastern politics. Jonah was also a player. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 14 that he was involved. We read there that the king of that time, King Jeroboam, had been restoring the borders of Israel. Earlier, the borders of Israel had shrunk. Different nations had been nibbling away at them. But during Jeroboam's reign, he pushed back and enlarged the nation, brought it back up to about the size that it had been under King David and King Solomon. That's what you learn there in chapter 14. When you get down to verse 25, you hear something very interesting. King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by, don't miss it, his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Now that's unusual. Most prophets confronted their kings with the things that the king was doing wrong. Jonah, however, supported what the king was doing, and he spoke during a time when Israel was once again a power to be reckoned with on the international political stage. 
but they were a power that was not going to last. There's another prophet, Hosea, whose ministry overlapped with Jonah's. And Hosea had been denouncing Israel for their sins, and he predicted that God was going to judge Israel by the hand of Assyria. That Assyria would invade them, defeat them, take them into captivity. So take all of that and put it all together. Here's Jonah, the Jewish patriot, a pro-nationalist force in Israel. And he's realizing that if Nineveh is judged for their evil, that guarantees Israel's future is going to be that much brighter. And so he runs from God's presence. He flees God's presence. And he does so so that Nineveh cannot be warned of their coming judgment. Now notice very carefully what Jonah has done. He has made his own judgment. He has decided Nineveh should not receive the chance of mercy. Nineveh does not deserve this opportunity. Other people can be offered mercy. That's great. They, 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 you know, when he's drowning, he's thankful for it. Other people who deserve God's mercy can receive it. But Nineveh, as an enemy of his people, does not deserve it. And so he makes plans to ensure that they can't get any. And in that moment, what is Jonah promoting? He's saying there are different kinds of justice that are appropriate for different kinds of people and for different kinds of activities. There are different standards of justice for different kinds of people because the nature of what some people do says that they don't deserve the rich, complex justice that God has. They deserve some other form of justice. They deserve my justice. In other words, he says, justice is relative. And I'm the arbiter. I'm the judge of which kind of justice is dispensed to whom. You realize Jonah would have fit really well into our modern world. Have you heard someone use the phrase, for me, this is a matter of justice? What are they saying in that moment? They're saying, this thing that I'm talking about is obviously wrong. And just as obviously it needs to be fixed in this obvious way, for me, it's a matter of justice. It's just self-evident. The problem with that phrase is that it's easy to find someone else who says, no, it's obvious to me that it should be treated in a different way. In other words, if you say that justice is relative, if you appeal to your own sense of what justice is, you're actually undermining justice. Because who are you to tell all the rest of us what is and is not just? Who's Jonah to decide that the Ninevites should be destroyed now and that they should not have the opportunity to turn from evil? Why does he get to make that decision for them? See the problem? When you locate the source of authority for justice at the level of the individual, when you make the individual the one who determines whether a thing is just or not, You've taken this beautiful thing called justice and you've reduced it to an opinion. When you say, for me, this is a matter of justice, what you're really saying is, this is how I think it should be. At which point, another individual will say, well, I disagree. I think this is how it should be. You need something bigger than the individual if you're going to have real justice so that it's not simply someone's opinion if you're going to have justice that does not devolve to the level of what Jonah would end up giving you. So what's larger than the individual? You could try stepping up to the level of the group, 
to the level of what your society identifies as just or unjust, which is also what you hear in the modern world. You hear people saying regularly that you need to be on the right side of history, that you need to make sure that what you believe and what you do today will be judged well by future generations as they look back on it, which, by the way, is, is a powerful tool in an argument because of how it hooks you emotionally. I mean, who, who wants to be on the wrong side of history? But if you have intellectual integrity, you have to pause and you have to ask, well, wait a minute. The right side of whose history? Whose side is the right one that I need to be on? And how do you know that that's really the right side of history? There are always competing historical perspectives and interpretations that look back over time. Who's to say which one of them is the right side and which is the wrong? It's even more complicated than that. If I'm supposed to make decisions today based on my best estimate of what the majority opinion of a given issue will be, how far out do I need to anticipate when that will be? Do it, it, will five years from now be enough? How about 25 years, 50, 100? Please understand, this is not a rhetorical question. Our society right now is in the process of revisiting how we think about many historical figures. If you want to be provocative, take Christopher Columbus, for instance. We used to have a holiday and we used to have statues that would honor him. But now there is a sizable and influential historical perspective that says he should not be honored. And so states are changing what used to be known as Columbus Day. Local governments are removing statues of him. Philadelphia is. Now, my point here is not to weigh into that debate. I have no interest in weighing into that this morning. Not sure that I have a lot to weigh into. My point is that at one time someone put up a statue because they believed, lived in an era where they thought that was the right thing to do, that they were on the right side of history to do that. Fast forward some decades, centuries, you find yourself living in a historical era that has a different right side. In other words, if you appeal to the group level to anchor your sense of justice, you're also appealing to an opinion and one that changes with the times. It sounds like a moral imperative, be on the right side of history, but it has no more staying power and no more basis underneath of it than an appeal made at the individual level. If you want justice, which you should, if you want something that applies to everyone all the time, the only way out of this dilemma is to recognize the truth that you find in scripture. That there is an absolute moral code that we are all obligated to follow. That there's a code that exists at the level of humanity, not the level of the group, not the level of the individual. There's an absolute moral code that we are all obligated to follow because there's an absolute being whose fundamental nature is moral, who has made us in his image to be moral, who holds us accountable to that morality, which is his morality. Any other viewpoint leaves you unable to justify why anyone should care about your call for justice. The moment that you step outside of this larger reality, the moment that you join Jonah and say that justice looks different for different people based on what they do and do not deserve, the moment that you do that, you doom your call for justice to be dismissed as simply one more opinion. You doom your call and you lose the ability to make sense out of the larger world. Because why? Why, if justice is relative, 
Why, if Jonah's approach is right, why do we keep insisting that justice really does exist? That it's more than an opinion? Why do we know instinctively inside of us that there is such a thing as justice? That we didn't simply make it up? That we can appeal to it and that in appealing to it, we can appeal to each other? Why do you not have to teach this to a child? Why does it come built in? When a little child claims, that's not fair, what are they saying? They're saying, that's not the way it should be. That's not equitable. That's not just. They know innately that there is such a thing as justice, and they know that they can appeal to it. They know that it sits outside of you, and it sits outside of them, and that in appealing to it, they're insisting that both you and they are subject to it. How come you don't have to teach that? How come you don't have to teach that if it's simply an individual or a group level thing? It's because justice is not an opinion. It's not dependent on you as an individual. It's not dependent on your social setting. Justice is what it is because the world is the way that God says it is. There are things in this world that you can count on, like God's justice. And you can count on the fact, one, that it's complex, two, that as a package it applies equally to all. Which brings up point three. That's also more applicable than you know. That, that, that if it applies equally to all, it also has to apply to you. Jonah's capacity for injustice is just as great as the Ninevites. Only I'm pretty sure he doesn't see it. In the moment that he longs for God's judgment on them, he doesn't see that he's just like them. And in that sense, he doesn't see that he is in as much danger of God's justice being executed on him as they are. Think about what he's doing. He flees from the presence of God, and he finds a boat bound in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Now, why does he do that? Why not just sit there in northern Israel, ignoring the word of the Lord? Why get on a boat? Why take, why take all this trouble? It's because on a boat, there is no possible way for him to ever enter the city of Nineveh and warn them. You can't walk to Nineveh if your feet are located on the deck of a ship, a ship that isn't yours, that you can't turn around, that might take up to a year on its voyage. Jonah, the one who has heard the word of the Lord that would offer the city the chance to repent, that Jonah made plans that guaranteed he could not get into the city. He made plans that took away any chance of them being able to repent. He made plans that guaranteed God's judgment would come and destroy the city because now there was nothing that would stop it. He made plans for every last person in that city to die. Go to the end of the book and you learn that there are 120,000 people living in Nineveh. Jonah plans the death of 120,000 people. He planned genocide on a scale that is just mind-boggling. Jonah just discovered a weapon of mass destruction that is unparalleled in the ancient world and all he has to do to set it off is walk away. Pretend he doesn't know anything about what's going to happen to them. Don't warn the city, and there will be nothing to prevent God from wiping them off the face of the planet. And so Jonah does. He walks away. He puts himself on a boat to get as far away as possible 
Is there any fundamental difference between Jonah and the Assyrians, between what he's done and what they do? Not the slightest. He is exactly as unjust, exactly as evil as they are. The only difference is that up to this point, he hasn't had the power to enforce his view of justice on them. But as soon as he has a big enough weapon, he uses it. No idea the magnitude of his own injustice toward others. No idea that the demands of God's justice had just as much to say to him as they did to the Assyrians. Now here's the hard part this morning. Humility demands that you and I understand that we are exactly the same. That's what humility demands. The hard part is you and I do not believe that. We don't really think that we would plot the death of 120,000 people or do any of the horrible things that the Assyrians did. How are we going to get on board with the reality that, no, we, we have the same heart as Jonah, the same heart as the Assyrians? Well, maybe this thought exercise will get us a little closer. Are there some people that strike you as being more deserving of judgment than others? Do you see some people in a fundamentally different category from yourself? a category that is worse than your own category? Do you see yourself better than, uh, than some others because of their politics, or because of their ethnicity, or because of their beliefs, or because of their stance on certain social issues? Have you thought at times that the world would be a better place without them, or at least without their influence? Have you thought that the world would be a better place if there were more people like you who thought like you? Think through those things and you start to get on board a little bit more closer to where Jonah is. Or think about it in a different direction. Are you desperate to tell your friends and neighbors that God has said he'll judge the world? Do you love letting other people know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he warns people so they'll turn from evil to him? Is that so strongly on your heart that you would interrupt your life and take a month's journey out of your way just to let other people know? Or are you like me, and you struggle to feel the reality of that coming judgment? Do you find it so much easier to quietly walk the other way? Isn't doing that dooming people just as effectively as what Jonah tried? Doesn't the demand for justice apply to you, apply to me, just as much as it does to everyone else? What do you see here in Scripture? You see that God cares about the things that you care about. He cares about things like justice, but the way that God cares about them are so much deeper and so much richer than you've ever cared about them. Which is a good thing because you're in need of the same thing that you care about. You need the complexity of God's justice. You need to have his judgment that tells you you're not okay where you are. But you also need his patience and you need his warning and you need his offer of mercy that would give you a chance to align with him. Not so that you're on the right side of history, but so that you're on the right side of him. And for that, you need Jesus. There's a time when Jesus was on earth that some people had asked Jesus to give them a sign just to, to prove himself to them. And he told them, Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. 
What's the sign of Jonah in these first few verses? The sign of Jonah is that Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jesus is the prophet, the one who spoke the words of God. Jesus is the prophet who heard God say to him, Arise, go to that great wicked city, earth. And Jesus did. He came here, he lived among us. And God said, Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jesus did. He proclaimed the coming judgment of hell more than any other person in the Bible. He warned us because he's not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should repent of their evil and turn from it. But he did more than simply warn us. He came to actually rescue us. And for that, he had to do more. He had to leave the presence of the Lord. He had to go down, not down to Joppa, not down to, into a boat. He had to come down from heaven, down onto the cross, down into the tomb, descending into hell so that he could set us free from our evil, so that he could set us free from our injustice, set us free from our complacency that not only would doom others, but that would also doom ourselves. He did all of that, enduring God's judgment so that you could escape it. He was judged instead of you. That's good news. That's good news that you need to hear. That's good news that this world needs to hear. And they need to hear it from you. Go to them. Don't walk away. Walk to them. Just like Jesus left heaven and came walking to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are desperate for you to invade our lives. To peel away the blindness and the darkness, Lord, that, that threatens us so that we can't see you. We don't even understand what justice is. But Lord, you do, and you understood how foolish we are, naive, and you've loved us anyway. Lord, for those of my brothers and sisters who um, I need to hear strong words, Lord, speak strong words to them. For those who need comfort, speak words of comfort. For those who are not yet brothers and sisters, Lord, call them to come to you who will rescue and deliver them from judgment. And then, Lord, Send us out to a world that desperately needs to hear of what a great God you are. And I ask this in Jesus' name.